0: tone of Madison's text camouflaged a truth only a handful of people knew she dreaded returning to Penn for spring semester but she was going back she was continuing to put one foot in front of the other trying to believe that maybe with the next step she would finally feel solid ground some semblance of the equilibrium she had known before at the same time she couldn't shake the feeling that something had shifted dramatically Something she couldn't quite name. And whatever it was, it had fundamentally changed how she processed the world. Well, welcome to episode two of the Goodreads podcast, Goodreads for a Better Life. And that is an excerpt from Kate Fagan's book called What Made Maddie Run. Now, I'm going to warn you up front that we're going to deal with very mature topics today. This is a story about teen suicide. And it's very heavy topic, but I think it's an important topic to talk about today. This is being recorded uh, right in November of 2020, which we are about seven to eight months into dealing with COVID-19 and all kinds of things in our nation. And the mental health issues through this time have continued to rise and soar and really affect people. So I hope that this book can be helpful to us, maybe some of us who are struggling right now and listening, but also that we could help those who are struggling in our lives and it might give us some thoughts and some ideas um, that we can put into practice. Now the story revolves around Madison Holloran, who was this incredible young woman. She was a great athlete. She played soccer and ran track and she ended up getting a division one scholarship to the University of Penn for track. And she was well liked, she had a lot of friends, she had a good family, Uh, everything in her life looked good. She was a D1 athlete going to an Ivy League school, uh, accomplishing great things, all kinds of world of potential ahead of her. But after her, at the end of her freshman year, the tragedy of the story is, is that she killed herself. She committed suicide and Most people just thought she was going through the normal struggles of being a freshman. But what we see is that these struggles were obviously much deeper than that. And so in this story, I think there's a lot of helpful things to be thinking about. Uh, The struggles of the next generation and high school and young people, what what, what I find so helpful, I'm... My heart breaks at the story, but what I, I find so value, valuable about it is it helps me to understand younger generations in, in different ways and really to understand some of the struggle and experience that they have. And so let's dive more into Maddie's story. Maddie's uh, dad, Jim, when she, he had picked her up one time and he knew that obviously something was wrong, but he, he didn't know it was this bad. He, he just knew that she was down and, you know, freshman years, a time of a lot of adjustments and sports can wear down your body and your emotions a little bit. And so he said this, he, he prided himself on having solutions when his kids faced problems. Sometimes they took his advice, sometimes they didn't. But at least he had guidance to offer them. Right now, though, Jim had no idea what to say or do. He kept rummaging through his mental toolbox, grabbing at whatever he could. He kept landing on the same thought. Madison must just be going through what Ashley went through. That's her older sister. Two years prior, his older daughter had enrolled at Penn State University. She hadn't liked it. She was home almost every weekend. The family knew she needed to transfer. By sophomore year, she was at the University of Alabama and everything was back to normal. Maybe that's all Madison needed, a change of scenery. Jim looked again at his daughter. She was so thin, so pale. Energy seemed to be leaking from her as if there was a pinprick no one could find. Every few minutes, she looked out the window. Jim doubted she was taking in the seam. She seemed to be looking past it. Then she would look back at her phone, continuing to reconfigure it. And so there were many signs of struggle But again, no one knew it was this deep. And Kate Fagan, the author of this, she went through similar things as a young college athlete, and she relates it to some of her experience. But she pulls out some of the realities that younger generations are facing that other generations haven't. She says this. She says, for one thing, they grew up without the Internet, without video games, without social media. This is previous generations. But now, Madison's and her friends were the first generation of digital natives. Kids who'd never known anything but connectivity. That connection at its most basic level meant that instead of calling your parents once a week from the dorm hallway, you could call and text them all day long. Even seeking their approval for your most mundane choices like what to eat at the dining hall. Constant communication may seem reassuring. The closing of physical distance, but it quickly becomes inhibiting. Digital life and social media at its most complex is an interweaving of public and private personas, a blending and splintering of identities unlike any other generations have experienced. And I know that sometimes it's it's easy for uh, the older generation to always look down and bash the younger generation and say, they're lazy, they're entitled, they're weak. We had it so much harder. But I want you to open your heart to what this author is saying. And she's saying, look, people, younger people are facing challenges that humans have not faced before. And so much of it looks good. So on the one hand, you think, wow, there's this incredible opportunity to connect and we can talk all the time. But one of the things that she's going to point out is that that also restricts growth and that kids and high school students and college students because they're always looking for approval and they're always able to, to get an answer or help. They never really learn to solve problems on their own and they never develop that self-confidence that says, I can figure it out even when life gets hard. And when I don't know the answer, I can keep persevering to figure out the answer. And that's one of the things that she constantly points out in Maddie's story. The story goes on about Maddie as she struggles with this commitment to track and she focuses so much of her struggle on track. And after one particular track meet, she just gave it all, you know, put her heart and soul into into a meet and came up short. And she was exhausted. She just collapsed. But her mom had come to watch her and she found her mom and it says and gave her a hug. The color had drained from Maddie's face, but how could it not have? She had literally expanded all the energy in her body. And then she said this, mom, I'm just not happy. I'm not right. Something is not right. And the author goes on to talk about some of these moments like this in in her life. She said, of course, what remained hard to understand was the effect this would have on Madison's psyche. She had never handled failure, even the garden variety kind well. During high school, Madison once finished fourth in the 400 hurdles at a county meet, much worse than expected. She started crying and asked to leave the event even before cooling down. She had a tremendous work ethic. She worked hard at everything she did but she just put so much pressure on herself. She goes on, she says, Maddie was addicted to progress, to the idea that her life would move in one vector, always forward, always improving, as opposed to the hills and valleys, the sideways and backward and upside down. And so because she had been so successful in school and athletics and friendships, she had not developed any capacity to navigate failure. And so her freshman year, she's at a moment where she just feels like she can't win and she can't figure it out. And no matter how hard she works, she just can't get out of this place that she's in. And so inevitably, it leads to a place of hopelessness. Kate Fagan uh, cites this University of Michigan study that says, a study in 2014 found that college kids are 40% less empathetic than they were 20 years before. Researchers at Michigan's Institute for Social Research shared their thoughts on why. They said the ease of having friends online might make people more likely to just tune out when they don't feel like responding to others' problems, a behavior that could carry over offline. Add in the hyper-competitive atmosphere and inflated expectations of success born as celebrity reality shows, and you have a social environment that works against slowing down and listening to someone who needs a bit of sympathy. And so interestingly enough, again, one of the negative effects of social media is that it's making people less empathetic because we can just pick and choose how we want to engage in people's lives and, and we can quickly move on where when you're having conversations in person and you're connecting in tangible and physical ways, it's much different. And I just was shocked by that, 40% less empathetic. So what we have now is young people that are more lost and insecure as ever before that we've seen in documented research. And yet on the other hand, we also have less empathy, which if you put those together is a very, very bad recipe and a great struggle for those in the midst of it. Kate Fagan goes on, she says, everything was in her control and Maddie's control, except the one thing that wasn't, the pain that embedded itself inside her, somewhere she could not find, no matter how tightly she controlled everything else, it wouldn't go away. Where she may have exerted the most control was in her social accounts, her favorite being Instagram. Unforeseen variables constantly affected her daily game plan, her life at Penn, But she had end-to-end control over the images that told the story of her life. Even if Madison was not having the college experience everyone told her she could be having and should be having, she could certainly make it seem like she was. And so this is one of the the things that she points out is that there's this online persona and and that young people, digital natives, feel this sense that, that they have to become a brand, and that they have to have the perfect picture and the perfect experiences and post them on the right platforms and get a certain following. And so they have this whole persona that they're constantly man- managing and working and tweaking and making great everything it should be. But then there's also reality of, of what they're actually feeling and going through and they're very, very different. And we're, when you're living in both of those, it becomes a very, very challenging and confusing place to be. I like what she says here. She says, things are rarely as they seem, especially if overcompensation distorts the image we've presented. This is also true for Instagram. The more polished and put together someone seems, everything lovely and beautiful and just as it should be, perhaps the more likely something vital is falling apart just off screen she goes on she says Maddie's life had always gone as Maddie expected it would go as she predicted and willed despite her near constant worrying that it would not perhaps her parents thought she had started to believe that's how life worked there was a sense in her family that maybe Maddie would learn a crucial lesson how to navigate life when it didn't seem to yield but sadly She was not able to get there. According to the American College Health Association, the suicide rate among 15 to 24-year-olds has tripled since the 1950s. An annual survey of college freshmen found that 30% reported feeling overwhelmed, with that number rising to 40.5% among women. This is the highest percentage registered since the survey started in 1985, at which point the numbers were approximately half, what they are now. One study found that an average high school student today likely deals with as much anxiety as a psychiatric patient in the 1950s did. And so, what Kate Fagan is pulling out is she's saying this is, these are real struggles. And it's easy to look at it from a cold hearted perspective because we didn't experience it. And I'm a bit in between, I'm 35, and I'm a millennial, and I'm one of, I guess, the older millennials, you could say. So I was not a digital native. I didn't have a cell phone till I was 18. And for most of my early years before college, social media really didn't exist. Facebook kind of started while I was in college, and so I didn't even get on that. Um, until a couple years into college. So I understand some of this, but also understand some of it before that. And my whole point is, is to not judge earlier generations, but instead try to understand some of these unique struggles because whether they seem real or significant to us, the reality is they are real and significant to that generation and we need to understand it we need to try and help it, and we need to reach out as much as we can, not with a spirit of judging them, but with a spirit of helping them navigate through all this. Um, <clears throat> Kate Fagan goes on to, to talk about this whole branding and marketing that that goes with all of this social media Um presence in our lives. She says, everything we do is seen as instrumental towards marketing ourselves for the college admission boards or for the job market, or to help us rush a fraternity or sorority, or to help us win friends, or to help us be more attractive potential partners. You see, the capitalist worldview has infiltrated our psychology and our sense of self-worth, and it is toxic. It results in fear of being ourselves and following what we really want to do. It results in micromanaging every aspect of our lives to best effect so that it looks good for Facebook or LinkedIn or Tinder or whatever. And I really believe there's a lot of truth in, in what she's saying here. Um, there's a great book that I'll probably do a podcast on in the future called Digital Minimalism by Cal Newport. It talks about how technology and our connectedness to it is is shaping us in, in a lot of bad ways and also how to uh, fight against that. Um, but nowadays, you know, we have to learn how to navigate our world in it because it's not all bad. And I'm not trying to make it out that this is a whole social media problem. But I do think that there is merit to what Kate Fagan is talking about in this book. She talks about how uh, researchers have found that teenagers who speak with their parents over the phone or in person release similar amounts of oxy, uh, oxytocin uh, and showed similar low levels of cortisol, which is stress. Oxytocin is a bonding hormone indicative of a reduction in stress. Now listen to this part. In comparison, those who instant message their parents released no oxytocin and had higher cortisol levels, um, as if they didn't act, interact at all. Thus, while the younger generation may favor non-oral modes of communication when it comes to providing emotional support, messaging appears comparable to not speaking with anyone at all. So again, what happens is we we have this false sense of connection because I'm texting. I'm Facebook messaging, I'm Instagramming, I'm Snapchatting. But the reality is, is it doesn't really create that sense of connection like real connection does when I'm talking, when when there's verbal communication taking place. And even better, there's physical interaction. So again, she's just pointing out some of the dynamics of the story because I think anyone who reads a story is heartbroken by it. And then you just ask yourself this question, how could this girl with so much potential, with so much going for her, feel this hopeless? And that's an important thing to realize about suicide and depression is that it doesn't always show up how you would think. Many times we we, we might think that it's always the person moping around or it's a person that has had some really bad life events. But... Uh, I've had the privilege of taking different suicide trainings through the military and, you know, through reading about this, through some of our you know, pastoral studies and things like that. But one of the interesting things to know about those struggling with this is that there's no type of person that's suicidal. In other words, people can look happy, they can be successful, they can have everything going on, and they can be facing this inner struggle. Or on the other hand, they could be what you might expect. They could be moping around, they could be having clear signs. But, but the point is, is that you see it through the whole spectrum, which is just a great reminder to really try to listen and connect with the people around us. And I want to just encourage all those who are listening today to check in with the people that you're close to and really try to listen. Really try to hear what's going on because many times those who are struggling with it, they may not come out right and tell you, hey, I'm thinking about killing myself. Uh, Many times they probably won't do that. But if you are trying to listen and follow up and engage and connect at the heart level, there's a much better chance of that conversation happening. Now, the story goes on, and it it tells uh, about how Maddie ended her life and how it affected her family, and it's just absolutely heartbreaking stuff. But I want to end today by just giving a few thoughts out there. Uh, number one, today, if you're listening and you're struggling, you you are thinking about killing yourself, um, I want you to reach out to someone right now. Someone that you trust. Be mom, dad, brother, sister, friend, co-worker, doesn't matter. And I want you to just be honest with them and say, hey, I need help. I am thinking about this. And um, listen, I guarantee that the people around you want to help you. Here's the other thing I want to tell you. Suicide, it's a, it's a permanent fix to a temporary problem. In other words, what feels so hopeless is not hopeless. And I am, I'm a follower of Jesus. And I believe that God has a purpose for every one of us. And you don't get to decide when it's over. That's God's decision. And so I want you to know today you have an eternal purpose. Your life is important. And here's, please hear this if you are struggling at all or have struggled with this. People are not better off without you. I I know many people get to feeling that way. They think, well, uh, they will be happier. They will be better off with. No, suicide creates devastation for generations. I've seen it firsthand, I've done funerals of suicides, I've counseled soldiers and their families, I've counseled people in our in churches um, around this issue. And I promise you, no one is better off. They're better off with you, no matter what. And whatever you're facing, it can be figured out. It absolutely can. So I want you to know that and receive that. Now let me speak to some of us who may be concerned about people in our life what do you do well number one you listen and connect try to really hear the people in our lives and that means slowing down that means putting our phone down that means having conversations where, where we're actually connecting and we're talking and we're looking eye to eye and we're we're actually interacting in a real way um, for those of you who maybe have kids at college, I think one great takeaway from this book is call them, talk to them, check in, see how they're doing, and listen to people not to respond, but to understand. Listen to, to hear their story, to, to figure out where they're at, ask questions Pull it out of them, even if it feels like pulling teeth. Now, here's the next thing. If you are concerned about someone, it's one of the most important things I learned. If you are concerned about someone and you really think that they may be thinking about killing themselves, ask them directly. This is gonna feel a little bit awkward, but don't dance around it, okay? Just say, hey, I'm worried about you. Are you thinking about killing yourself? Don't say, Are you thinking about hurting yourself? Are you thinking about any of it? Say it very, very clearly. Are you thinking about killing yourself? And here's why you should say it that clearly is because many times when you put it out loud, just like that, many times it will wake them up and they'll say, Yeah. I am thinking about killing myself and I can't believe that I'm thinking about. I can't believe I'm saying that right now I can't and and sometimes that that moment will trigger when it when it's out of their head and it's in a conversation it's a very very powerful thing so ask it don't dance around it ask it then the second question you ask is do you have a plan do you have a plan do you how did you Think about how you're going to do it, and where you're going to do it, and, and you have it all mapped out. And if they say yes, then this is an emergency situation. And you have to stay with them. You have to get them to whatever mental health resources you can, if that's take them to the ER, if that's say, hey, listen, we're, we're going to stay home till mom and dad get here, and we're going to talk about this, and I'm going to tell them what you told me. But do not leave them alone. That that is emergency. If they have a plan, you're in emergency mode. If they don't have a plan, and it's just an ideation or it's just a thought that they're struggling with, then still be with them, connect them. But but you can move them on to the next steps. You can connect them to a counselor or resource, a suicide hotline, connect them to the church, um, whatever. Definitely make sure to get connected with them. But you're not. It, it most likely is not as emergency of a situation but but if you know that they haven't mapped out this is very serious do not leave them until they've been handed off into a safe place safe people and they're with the right person and here's the deal sometimes asking those questions feels awkward i've asked many people every time it feels a little bit awkward i'm like am i gonna do this but but here's what i just want you to know Awkward is a small price to, play, to pay for someone's life, right? If it costs me a moment of awkwardness to get someone the help they need so they don't kill themselves, I'll be awkward all day long. That's a small price to pay. And friends, I believe that God has called us to look out for each other, to help each other and to be there for each other. So thank you for tuning in. I hope that's helpful to you. I pray God's peace and love is with you. We'll see you next episode.